Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. The endocrine system uses hormones to control your body's metabolism, energy level, reproduction, and growth and development. Hormones and the endocrine system. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Hello, I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hullinger of the Avera Medical Group, Brookings. Tonight, we continue our celebration of 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information as we discuss hormones and the endocrine system. Joining us from Rapid City, South Dakota is Dr. John Palmer of Monument Health Rapid City Clinic. Welcome, John, and thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah. So endocrinology might be a little bit of a foreign term for a lot of our viewers. Tell, tell us a little bit about what you do day in and day out. What type of diseases do you deal with? Well, endocrinology is an incredibly wide swath of things we take care of. I think most of the, most everybody knows us for diabetes. Yeah. Uh, so that is a lion's share of what we do, both type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Thyroid is another very large component of, of what we do. Uh, and and mm -hmm. so what it's, whether it's hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, uh, patients that may have thyroid nodules, thyroid cancers, those all fall into our wheelhouse. And that, that makes up the majority of the patients we see. But we'll also see pituitary disorders, uh, whether it be pituitary deficiencies, whether it be pituitary tumors. We take care of adrenal disorders as well for those patients who may have uh, issues with adrenal tumors or, or adrenal dysfunction. Uh, and then all other things that uh, kind of fall into our, our wheelhouse would be uh, parathyroid disorders, oftentimes that lead to calcium issues. Uh, we take care of a lot of osteoporosis uh, for, for patients mm -hmm. who have decreased bone density and fractures. So no day is uh, the same. We take care of a lot of different things and uh, it, it's, uh, it's why uh, variety is the spice of life with endocrinology. Great. So we look forward to answering your questions about hormones and the endocrine system. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. And to encourage your questions, those of you who ask a question during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. So we'll get to some viewer questions. We've already got one that I think is a great place to start. Um, we had a caller that asked, can you step through the endocrine system from head to toe and briefly explain where each gland is and what it does? So that's a tall task. I'm gonna hand it over to you. <laughs> that's a good one, right from the beginning. Yeah. Um, absolutely, we'll, uh, we'll walk you through a three-year endocrine fellowship here in a four-minute <laughs> uh, answer here. But no, that's a great question. You know, so many times uh, the term hormone gets thrown around and it, it, can, it can mean a lot of different things. You know, I think if you look at the endocrine system and, and the main things that we manage, um, if you go kind of from head to toe, 
Uh, you'll start with the pituitary glands, a nice picture here that you can see. Mm -hmm. um, they just put this up here so I can remember everything. So that was nice <laughs> of you guys, appreciate that. Uh, but the pituitary gland is, is the gland that we call the master gland. And, and like I like to explain to my patients, it's the gland that gives marching orders to all the various uh, organ systems. Uh, it basically is the monitor of how much uh, hormone is in the blood, and it sends the appropriate signal to try to get those, those uh, uh, different organ systems to function in a correct fashion. So it has its hand in, in a lot of different things, uh, basically telling the thyroid how much thyroid hormone it needs to make telling the adrenal gland how much cortisol needs to be made. Uh, in women, it helps regulate menstrual cycles. Uh, in men, it's there to help regulate testosterone production. So the pituitary gland, albeit quite small, is a very important gland uh, as far as the body system is concerned. Uh, as we go a little bit uh, further down, you get into the thyroid gland. And I you know the thyroid is a very important organ system, uh, mainly known for what can go wrong, uh, particularly if it's hyperthyroidism, where there's too much thyroid hormone production, or hypothyroidism, where a person doesn't make enough thyroid. Uh, both of those uh, is issues can, it can certainly lead to significant clinical problems. Um, and so for patients who, who don't make enough thyroid hormone, we'll replace it with, with thyroid uh, uh, medication. Uh, for those that have too much thyroid hormone production, oftentimes we have to give medications to slow the thyroid down. Um, if your thyroid is functioning correctly, it helps with your nervous system, it helps with your cardiovascular system, digestion. Uh, the thyroid really has its hands in a whole bunch of different areas. Uh, just outside of the thyroid, then we have the parathyroid glands, and those are the four very small glands that sit just behind the thyroid. Their job is to maintain calcium balance throughout the body to make certain that calcium levels don't get too high or too low. Uh, if they misbehave and oftentimes make too much parathyroid hormone, you can see patients that develop high levels of calcium in the blood, a very common thing that we see in the clinic uh, uh, quite frequently. Uh, as we go further uh, down the body, then, if you will, into the abdomen, that's where our pancreas is. And uh, the pancreas is obviously a very important system for a number of different things. Uh, we'll divide the pancreas into, into two systems, but the exocrine pancreatic function, that's primarily involved with digestion and, and making certain that you're metabolizing your food well and getting all the nutrients from it. Uh, and the endocrine uh, system, that's where I come in uh, for the most part as, as an endocrinologist. Uh, maintaining uh, the diabetes part uh, from the beta cells in particular that are at the head of the pancreas that are responsible for, for helping uh, insulin production and maintaining normal blood sugars. Uh, just outside of the pancreas on either side are our adrenal glands. The adrenal glands are important hormones for dealing with the stressors of life, maintaining adequate salt and water balance, maintaining blood pressure, uh, and a number of other different hormones uh, that really just maintain our day-to-day -day functioning and, and dealing with any illness or anything that may come up. Um, and then as we get into a little bit further down the, the ovaries and testes, again, our reproductive organ systems uh, that in, in working part and parcel with the pituitary gland maintain menstrual cycles uh, in, in females and, and testosterone production in, in men. Um, other things outside of the, those organ systems, uh, of course, the lipid metabolism and cholesterol and all those types of hormones that we deal with as well. Um, so again, the, the endocrine system is, is quite vast um, and that is a very, very brief overview of, of all the <laughs> hormones that we take care of uh, every day. 
Yeah, crash course, thank you. Uh, now everyone knows what's fair game for asking questions though, so that's great. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about thyroid disease. It's something we see really commonly in primary care, specifically hypothyroidism is an extremely common disease. Um, what, what type of symptoms does a person that's making too little thyroid hormone come in with? Um, how do we diagnose it and, and wh what kind of labs do we use to monitor that, John? Absolutely. So thyroid is a very common thing. Yeah, we know in, in most cases with hypothyroidism, uh, it ends up being an autoimmune condition where, mm -hmm. where patients have antibodies that cause their thyroid to no longer function correctly. And as a result of the inflammation that occurs because of the, the antibodies, um, I tell my patients that think of it as just slowly deteriorating the, the architectural integrity of your thyroid. The, the gland just loses its ability uh, to make thyroid hormone appropriately. And when you see from a laboratory study, the first thing that you'll see is an increase in the TSH. So that's the signal from the pituitary that tells the thyroid how much thyroid hormone to make. Uh, and then you'll start to see a decline actually in the thyroid hormone. We commonly measure that with a hormone called the, the free T4. Mm -hmm. uh, clinical symptoms that a person will get if they're developing hypothyroidism, oftentimes they'll complain of fatigue. They may complain of hair changes, nail changes, uh, sometimes weight gain can be associated with it, muscle aches, joint pains, uh, and a whole litany of things that, that certainly can all come at the same time. Uh, and so it's very important that we make the diagnosis, particularly following for those patients who may have a strong family history, uh, because it's certainly something that if we treat uh, effectively uh, and keep patients from developing the signs and symptoms, uh, they're certainly going to be a whole lot happier. Uh, mm -hmm. And so making sure we're screening people who are at risk, and then once we get people um, that, that are diagnosed, making sure they're on the adequate thyroid replacement, following their labs, and, and making sure they're staying in the normal range. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. I, it's simple blood tests that we use to both diagnose and monitor this, so it's not, not usually a hard diagnosis to make, right? Correct. Yeah. You know, um, and, and I think sometimes with the, the, the Internet's been a great thing for a, a treasure trove of, of data and information. Uh, but as it comes to the thyroid, uh, unfortunately, we do see quite a bit of misinformation out there. Um, and so you have to really consider your source and make sure it's a reputable source when you're doing your research online uh, as it pertains to making the diagnosis of thyroid and, and specifically what lab tests are needed. Mm -hmm. uh, but classically, we'll follow the TSH as the main one. And, and mm -hmm. particularly once we've diagnosed a patient, making certain that we have their numbers in the normal range. Uh, the TSH is oftentimes the only one you need uh, to make certain that it's in the normal range and, and the patient is getting an adequate amount of thyroid hormone. I like to tell my patients, we basically trick your pituitary into thinking the thyroid's back online. Mm -hmm. The thyroid really can't discern the difference from thyroid hormone coming from the gland or, or coming from the pill. It's just uh, really recognizing if there's an appropriate amount and we can read the signal from the TSH to make certain we're doing uh, best by our patients and getting them the adequate amount that they need. Yeah, good. I will occasionally have a patient ask me, why aren't you checking some of these other labs to monitor my thyroid disease when they're already on levothyroxine? I'm glad to hear the experts say it's really not necessary. I don't know how to interpret most of those lab tests and probably because we don't have good accuracy or guidelines on that. Absolutely, you know, and this is where I do find some of the misinformation on, online mm -hmm. as far as the need for a lot of these extra tests. You know, I will order more second, third level tests, if you will, um, if, specifically if I'm working somebody up for hyperthyroidism, sure. we do need some more of those more involved tests. But oftentimes for hypothyroidism, you know, the, the TSH, once they're diagnosed, that really is what you need. And, and according to the American Thyroid Association guidelines, uh, that's, that's uh, following the, the, the proper way of doing things for sure. Great. Well, let's get to some other um, other 
questions here. We have a Facebook viewer asking, where should the thyroid levels be several years after a thyroidectomy for thyroid cancer? So presumably someone had their thyroid removed for thyroid cancer. Really, we treat these people the same way as we do for autoimmune thyroiditis, which is what you were just talking about, right? Yeah, so um, we got some uh, we got some good questions out there. Too. Yeah, some experts in the audience. Um, so thyroid cancer uh, is a common thyroid uh, disorder, a common cancer, if you mm -hmm. will. Um, we take care of it in endocrinology, and we have a large patient base. When you take out a thyroid, whether it be for cancer, whether just be, uh, because the thyroid is is enlarged, uh, the the treatment is oftentimes the same as far as giving the replacement back with levothyroxine, sometimes called Synthroid, the mm -hmm. brand name of the medication. For specific thyroid cancers, though, for those that may be a little bit more higher risk, we sometimes will treat our thyroid cancer patients just a little bit different as far as our goals of therapy. Mm -hmm. We'll still use levothyroxine or Synthroid, but we may target that TSH value a little bit lower according to their risk stratification based on their thyroid cancer. And what we found is if we keep that TSH a little bit lower by giving those patients just a little bit more thyroid than we would somebody who's uh, had a thyroidectomy, that does seem to reduce the risk of recurrence of their thyroid cancer. So that would maybe be the only difference in those patients that are a little bit higher risk where we may wanna keep the TSH just a little bit lower. Yeah, may depend on the tumor type too, right? Correct, yeah. absolutely. The higher the risk, uh, the lower the, the TSH sometimes. And for patients that have lower risk or for those patients that have you know, a history 25, 30 years ago, a lot of times our, our goals are going to be very sure. similar to if you've simply had a thyroidectomy for a, a benign condition. Got it. We have a viewer from Brandon who asked, what would happen if I stopped taking my thyroid medication? So that's a great question, mm -hmm. and um, we don't advise it if your doctor's <laughs> prescribed it, um, but um, I have had this happen in, in, in several cases, and, and it's, it, it will vary depending upon the person. Mm -hmm. uh, some people still have some endogenous thyroid hormone production where the thyroid hasn't quit entirely. Um, let's say you've had a thyroidectomy for whatever reason and you stopped your medication. That can be very bad, and you can quickly become hypothyroid over weeks and certainly months, and that can have a very negative impact on your health. It, it certainly can affect your immune system. It can affect your heart. Uh, I have seen patients, uh, unfortunately, so profoundly hypothyroid from not taking their medication that they've needed ICU care. And in, in a couple of instances, we've actually had to put them on a ventilator. So it's very important that you maintain the medication and, and you're following regularly and having your labs drawn because uh, it's completely uh, avoidable and, and something you certainly don't want to have happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, we have another uh, viewer who asked, can thyroid conditions cause migraines or have an impact on individuals who experience migraines? Have you seen that? You know, absolutely. Um, it, it, it's always hard to, to correlate both of them with a straight line. You know, they, they, mm -hmm. they oftentimes can occur in the same person. Obviously, hypothyroidism is a very common disorder as are migraine headaches. And you can have uh, a person who may have uh, both of those diagnoses. Um, and so there may or may not be a, a, a direct link uh, in all cases. Uh, but certainly if your thyroid's not optimally managed, um, whether it be over-replaced or under-replaced, that certainly could lower that threshold for a migraine headache. Uh, and you certainly could see a correlation you know, from that standpoint for sure. Great. Well, let's change topics a little bit. We have a, a woman from Howard who asked, it, can COVID-19 cause type 1 diabetes? Do we know the answer to this? Well, we got a lot of people who've been reading the news. Uh, in fact, there's <laughs> something today uh, from MMR that just came out um, uh, about uh, 
this very thing. So we know with type 1 diabetes, uh, it's an autoimmune condition, again, like hypothyroidism. Uh, like most autoimmunities, it's, it's what we call a two-hit phenomenon. So we first and foremost know that you are going to be at risk based on your genetic makeup. There's certain genes that are high risk. Mm -hmm. There's something in the environment then that you're exposed to that sets those genes into motion. We've known classically that there are certain environmental triggers, whether it be infections, whether it be viruses, maybe food allergies, a whole litany of things that could potentially cause these uh, genes to, to go into motion, if you will. And so we're following COVID very closely, particularly those under the age of 18. And we're seeing that a, 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 there seems to be a, a spike perhaps in the incidence now of diabetes with COVID-19. It's hard to say if we're just simply following it closely because of the attention that COVID-19 is garnering. Uh, but I think, you know, in my opinion, uh, we're going to see an upswing in, in COVID-19 uh, related uh, type one diabetes cases when we look back five years, 10 years from now. Uh, but I think we've seen that in, in previous outbreaks of viral illnesses before in the past. I just think as widespread and, and widely published as COVID-19 is, um, you know, we're paying very, very close attention to it. Um, and, and I think we probably will see a link at some point in time. Fascinating. Well, worldwide, about 70,000 children ages 14 and younger are developing type 1 diabetes each year. Prairie Doc reporter Esther Michael spoke with pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Kurt Griffin of Sanford Health about the immunology of type 1 diabetes in children. Dr. Kurt Griffin is conducting extensive research on type 1 diabetes as part of the Sanford Project, where he oversees clinical trials. He's working toward the ultimate objective of curing the disease. So type 1 diabetes is really, it's an autoimmune disease. So it's one of those cases where your immune system is supposed to keep you healthy, turns on the body and starts attacking things that's supposed to be able to leave alone. In this case, the cells make insulin in the pancreas. Um, we know that it's probably at least half of it is genetic. So it's not like eye color with a single gene. There are, are dozens of genes involved. And then it's how do those genes in the kid interact with the environment to eventually trigger this and have it start. Griffin says it's vital that type 1 diabetes is caught early. Right now, the majority of the kids that don't know they have diabetes, don't know that it's smoldering, by the time they do come in, they are very sick. They're in intensive care. They're in something called diabetic ketoacidosis. And we know they do less well after that than if we catch somebody earlier. So that's the low hanging fruit. The next kind of stretch goal is there's a drug that's under review by the FDA right now called teflizumab. So big long word, the MAB means it's monoclonal antibody. Um, we've heard some of those being thrown about for COVID. In this case, this, this is not against a virus, it's against something on the surface of the white blood cells that doesn't kill the white blood cells, it just slows reactivation. Although this drug is not a cure, doctors now have the ability to screen patients and determine who may benefit from it. The only way we know that is by doing screening for antibodies. And it's not like your DNA that you're born with, they don't change. Um, we kind of have to sample at a couple different time points to you know, catch the ones who get it early. That's fascinating. 
You probably see a lot of uh, people who were diagnosed in childhood with type 1 diabetes and now carry that disease into adulthood. Is that right, Dr. Palmer? And tell us about those patients. How, how, how do they do? Are they living normal lifespans at this point? And, and what affects that? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a common uh, a common thing we see now, which is fantastic. Yeah. You know, um, I was just having this conversation earlier today with with a with a patient. Um, you know, as we talk about continuous glucose monitoring and all of the technology that we have now that we didn't right. have before. And you know, I, I grew up. Um, you know, with my best friend as a kid to this day, uh, type one diabetic. You know, and to just see kind of how he managed his diabetes when we were twelve versus how he manages it now at 45. Mm -hmm. You know, if you would have told him at 15 years of age that he would be on a continuous glucose monitor that would tell him what his blood sugar is whenever he wanted and communicated with the device that was delivering him insulin at the same time, we would have said, you're crazy. You know, and so now with the advent of this technology, the, the, the things we know as far as management of blood sugars, blood pressure, cholesterol, there's no reason a, a person with type one diabetes can't live a long, prosperous life just like anybody else. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's been such an advancement as far as what our understanding is, what our ability is to manage it. And it, it really is gratifying to see this technology, particularly for those older patients who didn't have this around, just to see how appreciative they are of, of now how we can manage this in a, in a much more uh, uh, normal fashion. I tell my patients all the time, I want you to live a normal life just like the rest of everybody else. Your diabetes should just come along for the ride, and it's a lot smoother ride now that we have pumps and sensors and, and all the better understanding that we have. Yeah, great. Well, we'll get back to some viewer questions. We've got a handful coming in. So we have um, an 87-year-old female with osteoporosis who's wondering if her osteoporosis will ever be resolved. She is currently taking medication. So what can a person with that diagnosis expect to happen over coming years? Well, the most important thing with osteoporosis is getting screened. Um, I, I, I so many times find patients that unfortunately will develop fractures, and then we do the DEXA scanning, the test that looks for osteoporosis mm -hmm. after the fact. So it's first and foremost, it's important to get screened if you're at high risk because you're on certain medications, you have a family history, whatever that may be, make sure you're talking to your provider to get a DEXA scan if it's appropriate. Uh, once we identify osteoporosis, then we want to make certain that we get you on the proper therapeutics. And much like diabetes, we've, we've kind of seen a, an evolution mm -hmm. in, in osteoporotic-related medications recently as well. Several new ones that have come to the market in the last 10 years that have been very beneficial. Some of those medications can actually help build backbone, uh, and so you can get actually a stronger bone, if you will. Uh, and then following regularly to make sure things like your calcium levels, your vitamin D levels are good, getting good exercise and diet and all those things to, to maintain a healthy lifestyle and, and following regularly with your doctor to make sure that uh, you're responding to therapy. Yeah, great. Um, we have a caller who's wondering why it might have taken their doctor so long to diagnose her with Addison disease when she had symptoms for about two years. So. Can you tell us what Addison disease is and just talk about some of the challenges of diagnosing some of these more uncommon diseases? Absolutely. So Addison's disease is, uh, is an autoimmune disease, again, like we were talking about with, with type uh, 1 diabetes, but rather than the antibodies being to the pancreas, they're to the uh, adrenal gland. And as a result of the antibodies causing a, a destruction to the adrenal gland, you get a deficiency in a hormone called cortisol which is necessary to deal with the stressors of daily life, maintain blood pressure, maintain uh, salt and water balance, uh, and another hormone, aldosterone, which is also important for maintaining your blood pressure and salt and water balance. 
Uh, if an individual develops Addison's, that is a potentially life-threatening mm -hmm. disease. You're at greater risk for developing infection. You're at greater risk of having what we call cardiovascular collapse just simply because you have low blood pressure as a result of being deficient in those hormones. Uh, Addison's though, to your point, is uncommon and it oftentimes can get missed because it's not something we see. And, you know, we screen it frequently, but oftentimes we don't find it positive. So it is something that is missed. But I will say as an endocrinologist, it is the most gratifying diagnosis. In fact, I had a new onset one just a couple of months ago. And I told the individual, as soon as I give you this medication, I'm gonna be your favorite doctor tomorrow <laughs> because you are going to feel so much better. And as soon as you start replacing those hormones that are deficient, uh, it's almost instantaneously how much better they, they feel. So for people, lightness ahead, dizziness, low blood pressure, mm -hmm. unintentional weight loss, uh, that's a cue to say, you know, could I have Addison's? Again, it's very rare, uh, but those are things that you want to be cued into. Yeah. And for me as a primary care physician, some of the challenges, especially with adrenal abnormalities, just doing a simple lab test isn't usually good enough. Some of the, the actual testing for diagnosis is more complicated, and that's when I end up referring on to my endocrinology specialists. Absolutely. You know, there's some dynamic tests that sometimes need to be done, and like a lot of endocrinology, there's a lot of gray. It's not always black and white, and, mm -hmm. and so it can be a, a challenging diagnosis for sure. Yeah. Great. Um, let's see here. We have a viewer who had her thyroid taken out in 1990. Her doctor said she should never get off Synthroid. And it sounds like she, the, the doctor said that word. Due to insurance, she's currently on levothyroxine. So that, that's the generic form of the brand name Synthroid drug. Should she be concerned about that change? So this is a common question we mm -hmm. get. Um, and, and so to, just to kind of break down the differences, Synthroid is the brand name. Um, and then levothyroxine is the generic name. And so they're both the same thing. The difference is in the manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So Synthroid is coming from, a, from the medication or from the, the company that uh, ultimately made the medication, uh, whereas the others are generics. Mm -hmm. And the FDA has it as such that the, the generics can be within a certain range of the brand name. And that may be somewhere between 90% to 110% of the actual uh, branded uh, name. And so there has been some variability sometimes in the generic manufacturers. And so for patients that are having wandering TSH values where we just can't quite get them right, sometimes we'll recommend just staying on the brand name so we know you're specifically getting 100% true the amount that's listed on the, on the label. Um, you know, to me, I have an open mind about it. Um, it's certainly a whole lot more cost effective to use levothyroxine. Mm -hmm. And I would say the majority of my patients do quite fine with it. Have a conversation with your, doc, uh, with your doctor, have a conversation with your pocketbook, and, and <laughs> you can probably find the, um, the, the, the right answer for you. Um, but whatever the patient's preference is, that's ultimately what I go with. Sure. Um, we have a woman watching on Facebook who says she has been told she has a growth on her parathyroid gland, on one parathyroid gland. We talked about there are four of those. Her calcium has been between 10.5 and 11.5 for several years. Um, and since they found the nodule, her doctors at the Mayo Clinic want to remove it. Should I do this or can I take medicine to control that hyperparathyroidism? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. um, so. Anytime we see an abnormal parathyroid, as far as the size, it's always an adenoma. Um, mm -hmm. Generally on imaging studies, we shouldn't see a parathyroid. If you do, basically by definition, it's likely uh, uh, abnormal. 
And so when a parathyroid, we call it a parathyroid adenoma, becomes enlarged and abnormal, it secretes too much parathyroid hormone, which in turn takes too much calcium out of the bones. Uh, generally, we have some rough rules of, of thumb as far as who should go to surgery. Generally, patients that are less than 50, we recommend sending you to surgery because it does increase your risk of developing osteoporosis over time, and we certainly don't want that. Um, if your serum calcium levels, your blood levels of calcium are too high, say they're a, a point higher than the upper limit of normal, oftentimes we recommend that we send you for surgery. Um, if patients are symptomatic, if they're having muscle aches, joint pains, uh, whatever it may be that could be related to either the high calcium uh, or the high parathyroid levels, we recommend surgery. Uh, and for those individuals that may have a history of kidney disorder, uh, where the kidney may be impacted from too much calcium, oftentimes manifested with kidney stones, that would be another indication where I would say, you know, we should probably send you for, for surgery. Now, if a patient's older, if they're not wanting surgery, if they don't have osteoporotic uh, parameters, maybe their calcium is mildly elevated, it's something we can oftentimes follow. Mm -hmm. um, there are some medications that we can give for it. It's oftentimes though, for those patients that are very um, uh, high calcium levels that may otherwise not be a good surgical candidate. Uh, for those individuals, we'll sometimes give a, a medication, but that's pretty unusual. And most of the time it's either fi uh, follow conservatively or, or send you for surgery. Good. Um, we had a question uh, yeah. from another viewer about um, goiters. So what is a goiter and why do they form? So a goiter is just probably a, a generic term we use um, to refer to an abnormality in the thyroid. And, and so a goiter, as we commonly may know it, like in the lay press might just be an, a diffusely enlarged thyroid gland. So the whole gland looks bigger. Um, if a person has a single nodule within a thyroid, we may call that a, a, a uninodular goiter or one area that has an enlargement. Or if a person has multiple nodules within a thyroid, we'll call that a multinodular uh, goiter. Uh, so a generic term that can mean a lot of different things. Why a thyroid becomes enlarged, why we get nodules, uh, we don't quite uh, know fully. It's just abnormal growth within the gland. Uh, fortunately, the vast majority of nodules are going to be benign uh, uh, growths. They're not going to be cancers, uh, although we do see a fair number of cancers. And so if you have been diagnosed with an enlarged thyroid, you have been noted to have a nodule. It's important to have an ultrasound so we can image that thyroid. We can see what those nodules look like and to see if there's any more interventions such as a biopsy or something that needs to be done uh, to make certain we aren't missing a cancer. All right. Um, we have a viewer wondering if we could talk about Hashimoto disease and how it is treated. So this is mo most common reason we see hypothyroidism, which we've talked about a little bit. Absolutely. So Hashimoto's, um, is sometimes patients get uh, intimidated by that name and that diagnosis. Hashimoto just refers to Dr. Hashimoto, who was the first doctor who drew the line between autoimmunity and the development of hypothyroidism. And so when we say a person has Hashimoto's disease or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, what we're referring to is the autoimmune development of hypothyroidism. So those antibodies commonly measured as TPO antibodies mm -hmm. are those that are binding to the thyroid, causing the destruction and the inflammation of the thyroid gland and ultimately leading to the clinical hypothyroidism. Um, it's treated um, just like we would if we took your, your thyroid out surgically, per se, with, with thyroid replacement. And in no way should be anything that is, is more worrisome or, or uh, any more severe or serious 
which is a common misconception that mm -hmm. I'll see with patients. We're gonna treat you just the same. We're gonna get your thyroid replaced adequately um, and, and make sure that um, you're feeling better and, and, and getting your symptoms in the rear view mirror. Yeah, good. Along those lines, we had another question about, is there ever a relationship between Hashimoto's disease or autoimmune thyroid disease and the adrenal glands? Absolutely. Well, we have some smart viewers out there today. <laughs> so uh, this is a great question. So yes, there absolutely is. When, when one person has an autoimmune condition, whether it be hypothyroidism, whether it be adrenal insufficiency, whether it be type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, you name it, you're going to be at risk for other autoimmunities. And one that we commonly will, will refer to as something called uh, the Schmidt syndrome, which refers to a person who has autoimmune hypothyroidism and autoimmune uh, uh, adrenal insufficiency. And you probably remember this was drilled into our heads as residents that mm -hmm. uh, anybody who has new onset uh, hypothyroidism, that we also need uh, ill enough to be in the hospital, that we have to look at their adrenal glands at the same time to make certain that we're not missing that concurrently. And so that's a common thing that you'll see. Um, I, you know, when I say common, uh, in my world, it's common. Um, you know, <laughs> I probably have 20 people who have that, um, that, that diagnosis, uh, but it is certainly something that can happen and, and something that um, should certainly be screened for if, if there's clinical concern. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, in addition to being tonight's guest, Dr. Palmer agreed to share some of the latest information on blood glucose monitoring. Dr. John Palmer, endocrinologist at Monument Health, says advancements for continuous glucose monitoring, or CGM, have really transformed diabetes management. From a patient's perspective, uh, it's so much easier. There's no more fingers uh, pricking. They don't have to test their blood sugars uh, via the conventional method. They're able to see their glucose levels in real time, uh, which is so much more convenient for the patient. He adds that CGM is important for patient safety. These devices will alert the patients when they're having high blood sugars, when they're having low blood sugars. And really what we've seen is that's transformed the patient's management, uh, really eliminating those, those episodes uh, to a, a greater extent. Uh, and then really just uh, having the patient be much more comfortable managing their diabetes. As for the provider, it helps determine how to treat patients. It's been an absolute goldmine of, of data. Rather than looking at a few points in time as far as the, the, the blood sugars that they're testing via the conventional glucometer route, I can see patterns. I can see when they're high. I can see when they're low. Uh, I can see where we need to adjust insulin, what time of day. Uh, and we don't even need to do this in clinic anymore. Palmer says most common CGMs are Dexcom, Libre Freestyle, and The Guardian. Those are the three main ones that we primarily use. There is some uh, implantable technology that's out there. Uh, but to this point in time, that really hasn't taken off, I think, uh, uh, in popularity, primarily because of, of how well uh, these, these self-administered or these self-placed um, uh, uh, sensors have been. He says the change in technology since he started has been astounding. And far as how I manage diabetes in 2022 compared to when I started, uh, you know, in 2009, it's night and day different. I would say the evolution and the continued progress and accuracy and user friendliness of CGM technology, these continuous glucose monitors, has totally changed the way we manage diabetes. I've got some long-standing diabetic patients. You know, we're talking patients in their 50s, 60s that were diagnosed as, as four and five-year-olds. So you're talking patients with a half century of diabetes. You know, and I oftentimes will, will, will kind of kiddingly ask them and say, did you ever think in a million years that you'd be hooked to a device 
that's telling you what your blood sugar is in real time. You know, these are patients that maybe got their blood sugar checked every three months when they had their blood drawn and they had to use urine sticks to get an estimate of where their blood glucose values were. Now they have this thing in their pocket that's telling them where their blood sugar is at any instance, and it's going to warn them if they're having low blood sugar. Uh, you know, it's just astounding, I think, to think where that technology has come. And what's even more exciting is the direction we're headed. Thanks for that, Dr. Palmer. I mean, these, these technologies have changed not only how we're able to closely manage type 1, but even some type 2 diabetics really benefit from these glucose monitoring systems. Without question, mm -hmm. you know, whether you're type 1, whether you're type 2, uh, if you're on insulin therapy with either one of those diseases, obviously with, with type 1, you're going to be, but there's a large percentage of our patients with type 2s that are on insulin they benefit so much from this device. And it's mm -hmm. not only just the nuts and bolts of knowing where your blood sugar is or for me being able to help you, patients learn a lot from yeah. this data. Uh, they will learn, you know, I think a lot of what goes on as far as what certain foods will do to their blood sugars, what activity will do. And I even think subconsciously it changes behavior just simply because they get the cause and effect of everything they do because that is constantly there to, to tell them what their numbers are. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, we've got a bunch of viewer questions, so we'll try to slog through most of these um, with our remaining time. We have a viewer, we talked a little bit about this. Um, our standard protocol, as we talked about with thyroid labs, is to mostly check TSH, especially with monitoring, but maybe the free T4. But what, where does the reverse T3 fall into this? Is that one of those? That's one of those labs I don't really know how to interpret. John, how, tell us about that. That's one of those labs that um, you see commonly as something that um, uh, people will recommend. Current guidelines with a, a reverse T3, I, I can't tell you the last time I ordered one. Mm -hmm. um, they will not change my management in almost every single instance. There may be some very strange thyroid resistant type syndromes, maybe some hyperthyroid syndromes where you might find utility in one of those. But I think for the vast majority of patients, particularly those who have already been diagnosed with mm -hmm. hypothyroidism, when they're on thyroid replacement, there generally isn't much of a role for reverse T3. They're difficult to interpret. And moreover, and most importantly, it generally won't change your management as far as what your goals are and how you're going to do things. Okay. Um, we have a viewer who is a type 1 diabetic, and she's wondering if having diarrhea for a few weeks could be a sign of problems with the pancreas. Absolutely. Um, so anytime you get new onset uh, uh, diarrhea in a type 1 diabetic, there's several things we want to look at. Um, first and foremost, um, you could potentially develop some exocrine pancreatic dysfunction where you just don't make those hormones anymore that are responsible for, uh, uh, for digestion and metabolism. Uh, a common thing, though, too, again, because of the autoimmune nature of type 1 diabetes, Make certain that you've been screened for celiac. Uh, mm. We do see a large number of type one diabetics who will also have celiac disease or gluten intolerance. Uh, that's a common uh, diagnosis that will go with type one diabetes. Uh, and so anybody who has new onset diarrhea, that's certainly something I wanna screen them for. Make sure your thyroid's been checked if we haven't done that recently. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so making sure you're, you're communicating with your provider to get those laboratory studies drawn and, and to make certain that we're not missing something. Yeah, great. 
Um, we have a viewer who asked about testosterone. He's 75 or someone is 75 and has had low testosterone but stopped taking their injections for it. Is there a danger to not replacing testosterone in, in older men? So it's not dangerous mm -hmm. in the way it is with some other organ systems. We talked about the thyroid earlier. If you stop mm -hmm. taking your thyroid, uh, if you had adrenal insufficiency and stop taking your, your cortisol replacement, that can be very dangerous. Testosterone isn't the same. You won't have any life-threatening illness or anything along those lines, but you may feel poorly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and certainly your quality of life, your energy, your strength, uh, your general sense of well-being may be negatively impacted. And, and so I would have the conversation again with, you, with your, your provider, making sure you're following the, the, the labs and if, if appropriate, you know, the therapy is a, a good way to, to alleviate some of those symptoms. All right. Um, the doctors mentioned that there are several drugs effective for treating osteoporosis. Can we name a few of those and what glands in the body are associated with osteoporosis? So the, the second part, um, mm -hmm. the glands that are most commonly involved with, with osteoporosis and negatively impacting it, we talked about the parathyroid earlier. If a person has elevated parathyroid hormone, that's essentially robbing the bones of calcium, which is going to make those bones weaker and put a person at risk for osteoporosis. Uh, vitamin D deficiency, mm -hmm. uh, you can see commonly, will also lead to that. So some of our patients with celiac disease who don't absorb vitamin D, they're oftentimes gonna be at risk for osteoporosis as well. Um, and so that's kind of the organ system that can affect it. Certainly if your thyroid's overactive or you're on too much thyroid, that too can contribute. Um, as far as the medical therapeutics, we have kind of the old standbys. Uh, those are what we call the bisphosphonates. Mm -hmm. um, Alindronate or, or Fosamax has been a common one. It's usually a weekly pill. Uh, we now have some newer agents, uh, Zoladrenic acid or Reclast, which is an annual mm -hmm. injection of, similar to Fosamax. We have another one called denosumab or prolia, which is an every six month injection. And then some of the newer ones, uh, teriparatide <laughs> or forteo, uh, which works to actually build backbone. And now we have a new one uh, called avinity, which has just been out in the last three years, which does also help to build backbone as well. And so there's very specific uh, drugs for patients. You wanna talk to your provider to make sure you're on the appropriate one. Uh, because there are some contraindications to using some. You'll probably respond to, to one better than the other, depending on, on your condition. Uh, but lots of options now, and, and that's been a very nice thing because for the longest time, we didn't have those options. And, and now these ones that we have are, are not only um, uh, helping, but they're, they're making things quite a bit better as far as the ability to, to build backbone. Yeah, and I find having those choices is huge, partly because the bisphosphonates, which we usually use first line, sometimes you don't want to use those for too long, and so it's nice to be able to have something to switch a patient to if they still need medication. Without question, mm -hmm. absolutely. Good. Um, along those lines, we had a viewer who's wondering if her sister's parathyroid tumor could be the reason for kidney stones and osteoporosis. Yes, yeah. and yes, it's mm -hmm. common. Um, you know, and a lot of times when you see somebody who has osteoporosis, especially if it seems out of place, you may be a younger patient, someone who otherwise wouldn't be at risk, mm -hmm. will say you, you, we should do a secondary workup, which in, involves getting a parathyroid, getting a calcium, and to assess for those things. So anybody who has a new onset of a calcium-based uh, kidney stone or mm -hmm. has osteoporosis that is otherwise uh, seems a little fishy, we should be checking parathyroid levels for sure. And then if we do identify a person has parathyroid disease, uh, you know, that's a person who probably would certainly benefit from surgical resection. Yeah, great. Um, we had an individual calling from Iowa who was recently diagnosed with SIADH and is wondering more about what causes that and can we talk about that? 
Absolutely. So SIADH just refers to the syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone. Uh, when a person makes too much antidiuretic hormone, the body will end up reabsorbing more water than it should. As a result of that water reabsorption, what we end up seeing is a decline in sodium levels. So when we measure your blood levels of sodium, it's lower than it should be. That can lead to a, a number of symptoms, oftentimes fatigue, uh, sometimes some uh, cognitive issues, just maybe feeling like you, you kind of have a, a, a cloudy brain, so to speak, or brain fog or a number of different things. And we know long-term for patients who aren't adequately treated, it, it can have cognitive effects uh, over time. Uh, so it's important too, when that diagnosis is made, is to figure out why you have SIADH. And uh, commonly it can be from med certain medications, mm -hmm. Uh, it, it sometimes can just simply be idiopathic, meaning we don't have a great explanation. But once that diagnosis is made, you wanna have a thorough workup to try to find the cause. And then again, more importantly, make sure it's being treated uh, to avoid any of those complications of long-term low sodium. Yeah, great. We had a viewer ask, is there a way to slow the release of growth hormone? Growth hormone's not something I think about very often as an adult physician, but what do you know about that, John? Well, that, I don't either. Um, because we don't <laughs> treat a lot of growth hormone as adult endocrinologists. Um, that's, that's been an area of debate. Mm -hmm. um, so where, where I deal with growth hormone primarily as an adult endocrinologist is when growth hormone goes awry and, and there's too much of it. Mm -hmm. um, if you make too much growth hormone, that can lead to a number of problems. Uh, it can cause problems with your bones. It can cause problems with your heart. It can lead to diabetes, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, a whole list of things. Uh, the overwhelming number of growth hormone excess cases come from a benign tumor secreting growth hormone in the pituitary gland. Mm -hmm. That's what I diagnose. Mm -hmm. um, as far as uh, slowing the, the release, um, oftentimes if we diagnose it, we'll take someone to surgery to take the growth hormone producing tumor out. If we're unable to resect the entirety of it and growth hormone levels remain elevated, there are medications that we can give to, to reduce the growth hormone levels to make certain that they're not excessive and, and still leading to those problems. So that's kind of where I interject with growth hormone. Some patients and adults have growth hormone deficiency as part of a, a general pituitary disorder. There's a lot of debate as to whether adults truly benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Kids truly do, that, that, that's unquestioned. But in the adult world, um, it's something that we don't do a whole lot of treatment with uh, just because the, the data has been somewhat mixed as far as growth hormone therapy. Got it. We've got a, just a couple minutes left. We'll see if we can get through our last few questions here. Um, we had a viewer from Chester ask, what testing can a person have done to determine if their adrenals are working properly? So to test your adrenals, particularly if it's uh, deficient, we'll oftentimes do a first thing in the morning cortisol level and another hormone called ACTH. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're on the fence, we'll sometimes do a dynamic test called an ACTH stimulation study where we try to stimulate your adrenal glands to make appropriate cortisol levels. And again, those are kind of the next level tests that we do in our clinic quite mm -hmm. frequently. Uh, but oftentimes just starting with the baseline cortisol level in the morning uh, will be sufficient in most cases. Mm -hmm. Great. We had a woman from Sioux Falls who says she's taking 30 milligrams of thyroid NP for hypothyroidism, but it's not covered. Um, why is that? Not covered if by I insurance, had that answer, I, I would be very, very happy um, because every insurance company is different. Yes. Um, uh, NP thyroid, for those who may not be familiar, is, is what we uh, call porcine uh, thyroid. Uh, it basically is uh, from a pig. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to have both T4 and T3, the two active thyroid hormone components. 
which is a little bit different from levothyroxine, which is just T4. Mm -hmm. I find some patients, they do better on the on that formulation. And, and so we try to fight for our patients that are on it to try to get it approved by your insurance. Talk to your doctor about getting maybe a prior authorization or appeal. Um, but oftentimes we, we sometimes are just uh, at the mercy of the insurance. Um, we had a, a question on Facebook that uh, viewer had had their thyroid removed um, and now is on some levothyroxine, I presume. Um, their TSH is 0.8, so on the lower end of that range, and a free T4 1.07, but the viewer feels lethargic and wants the dose increased. Why would her physician not increase that dose? That's a great question, mm -hmm. and this is a very common thing I see in, mm -hmm. in, my, in my clinic, and it's tough. Um, you know, we have subjective data and we have objective data. Mm -hmm. The subjective data is those 10 symptoms that you can get at WebMD for hypothyroidism, and you can check the box for all 10 and say, this has to be my thyroid. Then we get the objective data, uh, which is the labs, um, and, and the lab studies oftentimes are what we go by. Mm -hmm. Have a conversation with your provider, um, but I generally don't recommend overdoing it because that comes with its own whole host of, of, of issues as well. So tough question, open dialogue with your provider. Great. The winner of our drawing tonight is Dorothy from New Effington, South Dakota. Thank you, Dorothy, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Last spring, I was at home washing my hands, and as I glanced up into the mirror, I noticed something unusual. My bathroom light hit my neck just right as I swallowed, and there it was, a prominent lump. I diagnosed myself with a thyroid nodule and wondered how I, a physician, had failed to notice this large protuberance before that moment. Thyroid nodules are quite common. In some cases, they're noticed by the patient, like me, or are found on exam. In many cases, they are found on accident when someone has an imaging test like a CT scan, MRI, or ultrasound done for some other reason. The vast majority of thyroid nodules are benign, only 5% or less representing thyroid cancer. Typically, if a thyroid nodule is found, thyroid labs and a formal thyroid ultrasound will be recommended. The size and characteristics of the nodule on the ultrasound helps to guide whether a fine needle aspiration, a type of biopsy, should be performed. Many nodules are fluid-filled and small, which we know conveys almost no risk of being cancerous, so those can be watched without biopsy. In my case, the nodule was medium-sized, two centimeters in diameter, and had slight irregularities such that it was mildly suspicious and did warrant biopsy. As a physician patient awaiting my procedure, I knew that the data said my nodule was still very low risk of being cancerous, but I still had some anxiety about the worst case scenario. My colleague, a surgeon, performed my fine needle aspiration expertly the next month. The procedure was easy, done in the office with minimal discomfort. 
She drained out enough fluid that I no longer had a visible neck lump afterward. My results returned benign, a huge relief. My thyroid nodule story is a pretty typical one and leaves me with the following advice for others. If a nodule is characterized as benign on ultrasound, rest assured, as these guidelines are sound and based in excellent data. If your doctor recommends a biopsy, try not to lose too much sleep. The procedure is very tolerable and still almost all nodules are benign. I had the good fortune of knowing that even if my mass turned out to be cancer, most thyroid cancers have excellent cure rates. However, I am oddly grateful to have had a small taste of the health stress my patients deal with daily. I hope it improves my doctoring. Thank you to our guest, Dr. John Palmer, for volunteering his time to help us learn more about hormones and the endocrine system. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. As we celebrate our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. It may be a sight for sore eyes, but how do we keep those eyes from being sore in the first place? Ophthalmology, more than meets the eye. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. I grew up on a farm near Wessington Springs, South Dakota. All my life I've been an advocate for rural communities. One of the major challenges we face is providing reliable and easy access to primary health care. Hello, I'm Dr. Tom Dean. After completing medical training nearly 50 years ago, my wife Kathy and I came back to Wessington Springs to provide health care and to raise our family. Just like you, we love our small town. I serve on the Healing Words Foundation Board. This year, we celebrate the 20th season of the Prairie Dock. Rick and Joni Holmes started this mission of providing objective, evidence-based healthcare information free of charge to everyone, especially to people in rural areas who may have limited access to healthcare professionals. Truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20 seasons. That's the Prairie Doc, and it's up to us to help to continue that legacy. Please give to the Healing Words Foundation. Go to prairiedoc.org and make your donation today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Dock on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Dock as it continues to open doors for important medical information. 
and with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flanger District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftle Communications.